0: Today, we are going to be answering listener questions and also reflecting on our takeaways.
1: That's right. After uh, responding to some of the questions from your beloved listeners, we'll be talking about what each of us has learned about violence and nonviolence over the past six episodes.
0: I'm Susanna Black, Senior Editor of Plow.
1: I'm Peter Momsen, Editor of The Plow Quarterly, and this is The Plowcast.
0: This is the sixth and final episode of our first series. Uh, Check back again in six weeks for a whole other series of podcasts.
1: While you're at it, subscribe to Plow. Go to plow.com slash subscribe. And now to our conversation. So, Susanna, uh, we have a whole bunch of great questions from our listeners about constructive resilience, about the use of lethal violence by Christians, about violence in the Old Testament, the so-called texts of terror, and about whether the state is obligated to use just war, even if Christians aren't. And there's a bunch of others. Uh, We'll see if we get to them. Which one do you want to bite off first?
0: Um, I am interested in starting off with the question from Sam J. Tomlin. Um, That is his handle. I'm convinced that Christians should not use lethal violence. Does scripture outline what those who don't follow Jesus acting on behalf of the state should or shouldn't do with regard to levels of violence to restrain evil? So this is a this is a very sort of Anabaptist pointed question because it contains sort of Anabaptist premises. Do you want to take this, Pete?
1: Sure. Although I should quickly say that I don't feel qualified to speak for all Anabaptists. Uh, this is Pete Momsen. Uh, a mere editor at Plow, giving lowly
0: editor at Plow
1: opinions, for what they're worth. But I would just say that this Anabaptist, at least, believes in Romans thirteen that the state is given the power of the sword to maintain a relative order of justice in a fallen world. Christians are hired uh, are called to an absolute order of justice, which I believe. Involves nonviolence, but the state is instituted by God, relatively speaking, to maintain a minimal order of justice. And so, yes, can the state, should the state use violence as much as it needs to, but no more, to, to maintain justice, to... Uh, fight a defensive war against uh, an unjust aggressor to uh, keep peace, to prevent prevent the innocent from being victimized by bullies? Absolutely. And uh, I think, does scripture give guidance on that? Yes, I think it absolutely does. Uh, Paul's words about the task of the state you know, are pretty clear. Um, They also implicitly circumscribe what the state can do, uh, protect the innocent, punish the evil, uh, not the other way around. And then uh, the prophets, and and in fact the entire Old Testament, give a pretty vigorous account of what public justice looks like. Uh, So from a non-Anabaptist point of view, Does that ring true in any respect?
0: Yeah, that absolutely rings true. Um, I think, again, um, where we would differ is I I do think that it is possible for Christians to be – to serve as magistrates in a state like that. Um, But that basically describes what it seems to me the state is called to do. Um, Although I also do think – Well, I also think that uh,
1: Christians can serve as magistrates. I just think, like many of the early Christians did, that if they serve as magistrates, they just can never kill people
0: true but doesn't that like interfere with the purpose of the state like doesn't it sort of by definition if the purpose a purpose of the state a major purpose of the state is to bear the sword for the vindication of of the ju- um of justice and and i do think that like the other sort of part of this which is interesting is like that has to be seen in where where paul is talking about that um it's right after he talks about christians not um taking vengeance on their own behalfs. So it's kind of like saying he's kind of reminding them that like if you if you get you know if somebody you know steals from you or something like that, don't go into um, don't start a, a feud
1: a private vendetta
0: right a private vendetta refer it to the state. So how do, how would it how is it possible for a Christian to serve as a magistrate if that is a huge chunk of what this it is the state's job to do?
1: So you're in fact admitting that it is a huge part of the magistrate's job to use lethal violence, That's... or at least
0: be involved in a system which, which sort of approves of lethal violence. Like, I mean, I the one time that I like actually kind of almost got it, in, got to serve on a jury. Um, they asked me like it, it would have potentially been a death penalty case, and. I kind of recused myself saying I'm you know I'm not sure that I would be able to be objective enough to answer that question because I, I don't think that I could like you know be the person to say that this person should be put to death so how do you how do you distinguish between being involved in a system as a magistrate which could potentially lead to war to a just war or to um some kind of state, appropriate state for the use of lethal force, um, it, even if you're not doing it yourself?
1: Well, I, I certainly don't know, um, nor do I know how the first jailer uh, baptized in the book of Acts uh, was meant to act the first time he was called on to participate in torture, right? Um, but we do know who was baptized and, for all we know, remained a jailer, possibly until the first torture uh, case came along. Uh, there's this early, uh, I think, second century apostolic constitution, possibly from Syria. it debated where it came from. Also clear, you know, uh, admittedly, that it was never sort of a universal church teaching, uh, but it was rules on which catechumens should be accepted for baptism. And it said, you know, soldiers... Uh, can be baptized, but they have to promise never to kill. Uh, how does that work practically? I don't know. But, uh, <laughs> but that's how at least one community of early Christians dealt with it. We're probably not going to solve this one here. <laughs> um, but I think we have kind of hit Sam J. Tomlin's question. Is there scriptural guidance as to how the state should use force, even if we believe Christians should be nonviolent personally? Um, Yes, I think there is. Uh, Justice is an objective thing. And actually, it's the church's job to help inform the conscience of the state as to what is justice and what is injustice, what is good and what is bad.
0: That is, I do want to jump in and say that that is one of the ways in which Anabaptist, the Anabaptist kind of vision of the relationship between church and state is more similar to the kind of integralist Catholic vision than it is to the magisterial Protestant vision, again, because the idea is that the church is there as kind of like the guide to right conduct of the state and the state ought to be listening to it. Um, and But it is also over it. It is not. They're not like sort of equal partners in this, which is kind no, of interesting.
1: No, they are not intertwined. They're not uh, sort of... Uh, governing separate but equal spheres, the church kind of is, as you'll see from Anabaptist writings, but as you say, also Catholic Integralists, the church represents an absolute sphere of justice, the state merely a relative and passing and temporary and profoundly uh, compromised form of justice. All right, well, So many questions will never resolve, Susanna. (laughs) Uh, Let's go to another one. Peter Biles writes, how do we read the violence in the Old Testament? Something I would like to hear you guys discuss. Whoa. (laughs) So yet again, I find myself uh, completely, you know, unqualified really to weigh in on something that people have written dozens of books about who actually study the Old Testament I, I did talk to a few friends who do study the Old Testament and they pointed me to some books. So with all those qualifiers, uh, my big takeaway is I don't really know. Susanna?
0: Um, <laughs> that was it. Um, yeah, this definitely falls into the category of... Um, so when I first sort of converted in grad school or I don't know exactly when it was really there was a range of time. Um, You know, I used to freak out regularly about kind of various gigantic theological questions or, you know, texts of terror in the Bible. Um, And as I kind of got more and more used to being Christian and used to living with Jesus as my King and seeing him resolve various questions in various ways. Um, I, I developed this thing where like, I kind of have this Susanna's big box of things I don't know. And it is okay that that is there. <laughs> and there are many things in there and there are many things that I'm sure that I will not, you know, find out. And, you know, I, I'm not going to resolve these all before the new Jerusalem and possibly not even then. And on one level, the conquest of Caden is in those, is in that big box. Um, I do think that like there are kind of mitigating circ... Well, not mitigating circumstances, but there are the kind of like the the way that the um, text describes what happens. This is a culture that like word goes ahead that the Israelites are coming and that God has given this land to the Israelites. And there is kind of an expectation that... Um, either the Canaanites will repent and be joined to Israel in some sense, or in a, in a full sense, in, in a sense that will not allow them to maintain their paganism or will clear out ahead. And there, there is this kind of one thing that um, Timothy Keterling, who kind of chimed in on the Twitter thread where we were talking about this earlier pointed out, which is that um they're commanded to make an offer of peace whenever they approach a city to lay siege to it. And making an offer of peace is pretty rare um, in those days. So I don't know, man, that, that also, it all sounds like that. Yeah. Those are some potentially mitigating things, but boy, it's still firmly in the box of things that I do not understand. That is okay with me.
1: So up front, I think there's, there's two different things going on. One, that there is a sort of just war, uh, natural right of self-defense style of violence in the Old Testament from an Anabaptist perspective is is no problem, right? Jesus actually quite clearly says in the Sermon on the Mount, you know, it was said to you, but I say, right? And he's clearly instituting a new ethic of love and we'd believe of nonviolence in that. So a kind of, Just war, or you know, just form of capital punishment, or uh, natural right of self-defense—that being allowed and even blessed by God under the old custom uh, covenant—is is is no problem. That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is passages, particularly in the books of Joshua and the and Judges, uh, but elsewhere too. where God seems to command uh, genocide, the killing of every living thing, uh, the consecration of whole cities to destruction. There is that memorable passage, I believe, in the first book of Samuel, where Saul is commanded to destroy uh, a city of the Amalekites and fails to do so. He kills all the people but leaves some of the animals alive. And then that's really one of the big drivers for why God deposes him from the kingship. Now, those those texts are just super tough. And as far as I can tell, there's three kind of early responses to them that still play out in different forms. One is is the one represented by Marcion, Marcion. Uh, later declared a heretic, who basically said, you know, the Old Testament God who commanded horrible things uh, isn't the true God uh, shown in Jesus Christ at all, and so we should essentially reject uh, the Jewish God and the Jewish scriptures. Then there's Origen, who basically argued for a a spiritualizing reading of those passages, saying we shouldn't take them literally as history— you know, these uh, accounts of Israel's wars against its neighbors should rather be read as sort of uh, prefiguring our own fight against sin and the fact that we should make no compromise with the devil in our own hearts. So a completely ahistorical reading of those accounts. And then finally, Augustine, who basically said, well, if God commanded it, uh, it's not an atrocity, right? And I've seen you know, you can go and say the Gospel Coalition website, and you can still see people making an argument like that. Um, and I'll just say that I find that uh, morally horrible. I don't think that it's possible to ever justify uh, killing babies as something that God would command. But apart from that, I, I also don't find the other two sort of explanations satisfying either um, because the spiritualizing one just seems like a dodge. And, of course, the Marcionite one is uh, Marcionite. It's a supersessionist. It's a rejection of the, the, the story of God in, in the Old co- Covenant, which we're just not going to do. So where I've come on this is, yes, you can read those texts as hyperbolic, right, that, you know, and and we should, right? The book of Joshua tells you that the Amalekites are all wiped out, and then in Judges, you find the Amalekites are still living there, and, you know, most of the cities that Joshua supposedly conquered in Joshua are still uh, ruled by the seven nations that Israel's meant to destroy uh, at the beginning of the book of Judges. So the Bible itself kind of relativizes the claims that there was any kind of mass genocide. Um, still 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 like you say, Susanna, uh, those mitigations don't make make that stuff any less troubling and here's the thing. Uh, it's interesting. So us Anabaptists love to talk about the early church and it drives everyone else nuts. Um, but it is weird that the first couple of centuries of Christianity, just when Christians were most committed to nonviolence, uh, these texts didn't bother them. Like they didn't even really talk about them. The apostles don't really spend a lot of time trying to figure this out, um, and i guess where i guess at the heart of it is jesus himself right shares a name with joshua he's the son of david right he's descended from and named after the people most implicated in these old testament accounts so there there is something there that i don't think we get to kind of tie up too neatly and maybe just have to live with
0: and i mean it's It's not entirely a different question than Noah's flood, Um, except that like, using humans as – using Israelites as the agents of destruction just feels much freakier. But, yeah. Right.
1: Or or Exodus, right? So during Passover, a lot of people online are just remembering, again, that Passover is celebrating the death of – Lots of firstborn sons in Egypt.
0: So, we we have not solved this problem. Shockingly, we, we just haven't. We somehow haven't fixed it. Sorry, guys.
1: I think it's actually a good reminder that on all these questions of violence and nonviolence, life is difficult, right? And there is no shining line. And maybe this is one of those places where we get to remind ourselves, like you said at the beginning in answering this question, Jesus is our king. We believe as Christians, no matter where we come down on particularly questions that we're discussing here, that the heart of God is revealed in Jesus Christ. And that is what we're called to, and that's what is going to govern our lives. Well, let's turn to a question... That possibly we can answer a little more satisfyingly, Susanna. Steven, Steve Gumier asks, I would love to hear you discuss the just war theory and if the state has a moral obligation to use violence, war, as a means to prevent or reduce the possibility of greater violence. So we already talked about the role of the state, but I think it would be worthwhile talking about just war. The classic criteria of just war Uh, what role that tradition plays in Christianity Uh, for you as an Anglican. Obviously, you're a little more open to that, affirming that without your fingers crossed than I am. Um, So let me ask you, just war theory is a theory that's based on an Aristotelian tradition that's kind of imported into Christianity, by Augustine, because he needed something. <laughs> uh,
0: well, you've just loaded that right, <laughs> right?
1: How does that all work out for you?
0: <laughs> I'm I'm feeling um complicated about it as usual. Um so as you said, actually in the question that we just answered, there is a just war tradition in the Old Testament. There is a kind of sense when they're talking not so much about the conquest of Canaan, but other wars, others of Israel's wars that there are, like, both just wars, you know, um, that where the criteria would be something like what we recognize in just war theory today, and also just means of conducting wars. Um, so, and for me, the question really becomes, um, so, it, just war theory if you look at it like the, the the strongest steel man case for it has to do with like responsibility to, responsibility to protect um, and combined with the role of the state. So if you are the king of a country or you are in charge of you're the one who has the care of the community and someone is trying to attack your people and um, take their land and, and put them all to the sword. um it would be negligent of you to not try to fight back in a parallel way to if you were the father of a family and someone tried to kill your kid, it would be negligent of you not to fight back. Um, so that's kind of the steel manist position. Um, it's very unclear to me that that is entirely how just war theory, like there, there's also like a lot of people who are into just war theory kind of seem to be using it as a way of saying we're Christians, but we can still do war. So it's cool. Um, And that is not the way that just war theory, I think ought to, or at its best has been applied. It's been much more likely, or it's been sort of thought of and designed to be um, a limitation on war because you know, kings and other rulers as we have seen in our in America's recent history they just kind of like to go to war it um, is good for the various kinds of uh, economic growth it's good because you can take other people's stuff it um, kind of serves as a um, if you can like create an outside enemy it serves as a way to bind your people together um, there are all kinds of incentives to go to war and just war theory at its one of one of its jobs, I think, is to say most of those reasons, like all of the reasons that I have just listed are really bad reasons and you don't get to war, go to war because of them. Um, the other aspect of just war theory is, um, so that's use ad bellum, the the just, just reasons to go to war. Um, use in bellow is sort of just ways of conducting war. And this is also a kind of really distinctly... Um, I don't know, it's it's a very different. I've, you know, I've had many conversations with Christians, especially sort of Christians who are into owning the libs, um, where when you talk about just war theory, or when you talk about war, they will basically say the purpose of war is to win. And if you're and there are no rules in war, and that's a naive view. and what we need to do in war is win as quickly as possible and destroy the enemy. And we we can talk about justice once that is done because justice has no role in war. And just war theory says it's absolutely not true. There are many times in which it is better to lose a war than it is to, in fact, it is always the case that it is better to lose a war than to do injustice because it is always the case that it is better to do anything than to do injustice. Um, It is better to suffer injustice than to do injustice. And, That is very much not the kind of uh, total war um, vision of, you know, many, I guess you could call them ethicists in the 20th century, you know, sort of um, FDR style um, realists um, or Niburian style realists where, you know, I think... (laughs) the second world war was if you can call any war good a good war but there is a kind of realist tradition that comes out of it um, in american political thought that kind of uses the nazis as a bootstrap to say it's crazy to talk about justice in war because the bad guys are really bad and that is you know that leads you to things like Hiroshima and Nagasaki that that leads you to things um that are absolutely forbidden in the just war tradition the just war tradition would forbid things like poisoning um your enemy's wells or you know salting their fields and if there's anything that is like that more than damaging your enemy's like DNA so that their children are born with deformities like I I can't I can't imagine what it is like so um, just war theory at its best is a way of limiting both going to war and limiting, um. You know what you do in war, but it is also a sort of recognition of the obligation of um, a ruler to protect his people. Um. So yeah, that's kind of how I would look at it.
1: Right, and and from the point of view of kind of natural justice, that seems to make a lot of sense, right? Especially the dad protecting his kids. Like, what kind of monster would you be? What kind of complete wuss and failure as a father would you be if you did not protect your kids? Um, so there's kind of three pieces of it that I'd like to talk about more. And one is uh, the tough thing from for my side, right? Which is the example of, a supposedly just war like World War II, right? Literally fighting the Nazis, uh, which is sort of the trump card and the back of the mind of many. Um, Another one, though, is for the pro-just war people. I don't know, in the 20th century, I would be interested in your thoughts, Susanna. Was there ever a war that just war theory either prevented or uh, reduced in scope? In other words, is just war theory in practice such a huge loophole that it actually doesn't mean anything? The third piece, which I'm saving for last, is to get back to my original question. You know, Augustine, who is kind of credited with first starting Christian thinking about just war theory, he pretty much accepted that Christ's teaching was of nonviolence, at least in personal life, right? And the change that he saw was that now Christians are responsible for the empire. Now what, uh, what Jesus said to the disciples in their personal lives when they were a persecuted minority, no longer can just sort of be literalistically applied to us now that we're bearing responsibility for the Commonwealth. Uh, And so I would like to talk about whether that distinction between personal life and public office actually makes any sense in real life, Um, at least in Christian terms. But you were going to say something about – you were going to say something about whether just war theory actually is just an enormous loophole. And I should say I like the just war theory. Like just war theory is good.
0: Mm -hmm. (laughs) you heard it from an anabaptist um
1: (laughs) relatively good yeah
0: relatively good um i i'm trying to think of like i think there are maybe like some kinds of there, there are some cases of i don't know enemy troops surrendering where they weren't immediately massacred in the second world war and probably in the first world war, but I can sort of think of more in the second world war. Um, And the, even the idea of putting the, not like even the idea of the Nuremberg trials to a certain degree and the, um, the, everything that kind of came out of that, the idea, the, um, the whole Samuel Moyne, uh, human rights tradition that came out of that, I think is a kind of like outgrowth of just war theory. Like, and part of that was a good pushback against the um the nazi philosophy essentially of war which was an absolute um you know there you know in, in in nazi political philosophy which it was a real thing there wasn't a just war theory did not apply um and so there was a kind of conscious let's not be like the nazis except a lot of times like But that is, it's very rare. It is very rare for just war theory to do any good. In general, it serves as a giant loophole. Um, I think the Second World War was a just war, although it's interesting to sort of look at the reasons that were given um, for fighting the Second World War. We think of it as, um, you know, to fight, to, to sort of prevent the Holocaust. That was actually not, one of the main reasons that people went to war in the Second World War.
1: This is where we're getting onto difficult and also somewhat speculative territory, but a major thing that people have in mind when they say uh, just war theory because World War II, because who else would have prevented the Holocaust, Mm -hmm. um, is that the Holocaust was enabled by the fog of war. Mm -hmm. Now, obviously, Hitler was doing horrible things to the Jews and the gay people and Roma and all kinds of things long before uh, World War II formally began. But it really was, as far as I understand it, as a matter of historical fact, only in the fog of wartime that what we think of as the Holocaust was possible.
0: I mean, I think he would have he would have figured out he was really into doing that. He was really into doing that genocide as much as he could. And I think he would have probably figured out a way to do it. But yeah, it's certainly the case that um, war made it easier. And it's also the case that, um, you know, it, 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 that was not one of the major reasons that people were, that Americans at least were given for going to war, um, which again, I don't think that this is a case against the second world war exactly um, but again, I also think that the second world war may, may be like, maybe the only just war that I can think of. I certainly do not think that the American revolutionary war was a just war. Like we had, that was just it's very silly.
1: Um, the civil war,
0: the civil war again. I mean, you know, if, if that was to free the slaves, that was a really worthy cause, but that is not the reason that people were like the south was saying this is a war to free the slaves and the north you know including lincoln were saying no it's totally not a war to free the slaves we would never that's a ridiculous thing this is a war to save the union um i don't know it's just it's an interesting um sort of but it certainly had a, a good effect um god can bring good out of Out of horrible circumstances.
1: Right. And I guess what I draw from it is two things. I just don't think World War II and the Civil War are like knockout blows against Christian nonviolence as a tradition, because I think those things as historical phenomena are way more complicated than that. And yes, good things came from World War II. Undoubtedly, good things came from World War II and from the Civil War, but also a lot of bad things came from those. And so to use those as kind of rhetorical cudgels, I don't think works. Um, But there's also just a level of humility that we have to have regarding the flow of history and what really happens and the disconnect between our intentions and what, results, uh, especially uh, in the international and political sphere, that I'm not sure that just war theory really fully takes account of. And there's this sort of na- naivety, uh, weirdly enough, about realism, uh, thinking that what we intend and what we plan will have any relation to what results um that isn't priced in enough when people talk really confidently about going and getting the bad guys, um, and that was, of course, for for folks you know who are around after nine one one. That looms really large in all of our, of our lives, right? Uh, th- this hubristic, overweening confidence that we knew as a nation uh, what needed to be done and that we were the ones to do it, and God was going to bless it. Uh, most people were pretty convinced about that. Uh, most Christians were pretty convinced about that.
0: Meanwhile, my dad was convinced that nine eleven was like the Reichstag fire. And <laughs> what? So that's sense. just conce- uh, in the sense that he uh, thought that the military-industrial complex was looking to um, find a way to restrict uh, civil liberties and just find a war to go to.
1: Well, I think he was absolutely right, and and I kind of was moving in those circles at the time myself, and you could feel an instant chill covering the country in a, one of the most freaky ways imaginable. Well, we've talked a lot about just war. We should probably move on. I should just close by saying, from an Anabaptist point of view, as much as I've been poking holes in just war, um, I think the just war theory is a great gift to civilization uh, if not, if I don't think it's a gift to Christianity, I think it's at least a gift to civilization. It's good that there is restrictions on war and we should support those. And even if I might not say I, I feel that's a Christian vision of justice being practiced in just war, I think it's moving in that direction and therefore is something that we ought to affirm and actually hold people to account. If they say they're a just warrior, great, fine. Uh, Let's Let's look at those criteria.
0: Yeah. Um, You know what? There is actually one other thing that there's a kind of steel man that I want to do within my steel man, which is um, the sort of the idea of, okay, the maximalist, a father protecting someone who's trying to kill his kids. The the actual sort of um, way to think about that, if you are deeply committed to nonviolence, at least this is what I would do, is to say that like your intention um, is always going to be to protect your kid. It's not going to be to like kill the other person. Like that's not the outcome you're seeking. If you do kill the other person, that's a kind of principle of double effect. Um, which I know you and I've talked about this a little bit and you think that's a little bit of a cop out, I think, but it is a little bit parallel to the idea of, um, if a woman has an ectopic pregnancy and you are, are trying to save her life. And by saving her life, you remove the ectopic pregnancy. You essentially give her an abortion. Um, Traditional kind of Catholic uh, casuistry, which, you know, um, our friend of the pod, Charlie Kambassi would talk about, would say, this is actually okay because you're not intending to kill the baby. You're intending to save the woman's life. And the only way to do that, like the side effect of doing that is that the baby ends up dead which I, I, I wrestle with that, I think that's actually right. Um, it's called the principle of double effect, but a parallel thing could be made, a parallel um, case could be made both for protecting a child and much more complicatedly for protecting a country um, where you, know, you really, really want ideally the enemy army to just go away. And you're going to do everything that you can to get them to go away, and you might accidentally end up killing them. But that just starts to seem a little bit far-fetched.
1: Right. So, okay, let's let's climb into it. Double effect, right? Catholics love it. Anabaptists hate it. But actually, there's a level on which it's just common sense, right? So random guy is attacking one of my kids. I get involved and it's super like nonviolent talking Anabaptist podcaster. I nevertheless, you know, get into a fist fight with him or push him or something. And he falls down and breaks his neck. Right. I didn't intend to kill him. I was just trying to get him to stop attacking my kid. I would feel bad, but I don't think I would feel guilty. Um, and uh, that's fine to me, but there has to be a limiting factor, which I don't think your uh, some of your uh, double effect loving uh, Catholics quite get, because that works for me intuitively in a way that I am pointing a gun at Soldier across the tench, trench and pulling the trigger, um, blowing his head off, but I don't intend it. Because what I really intend is to serve my country. You know, that there I call BS. And uh, there has to be an out, outer limiting thing to that. Otherwise, you can double affect anything. Uh, where this was really illustrated to me is um, a scholar who I, I, I'm actually quite fond of, uh, Nigel Biggers, in, uh, over in the UK, wrote a book on war, just uh, War fury defending it against, you know, wussy pacifists like me. Uh, a number of years ago and he actually managed to defend the Battle of the Sum where tens of thousands of people are slaughtered for no reason as a legitimate illustration of just war theory's criteria all being fulfilled and of double effect uh, absolving anybody who did any atrocity or killing in that horrible slaughterhouse Um, Of personal guilt. And I think that if double effect and just war theory lets you excuse the battle of the sum, then I think you have to go back to the drawing board and ask yourself, um, is that really what Jesus is talking about anywhere in the Gospels? Because we're talking about Christianity here, not about some uh, disembodied form of of international ethics. Agreed. Okay, so I've done my rant. (laughs) Now let's move to... uh, Niaz Kadem, what is constructive resilience? How does it work? What are creative minorities? How do they work? And I think he actually threw in a question uh, about Baha'i community in Iran.
0: This is you. Did you this see is that? Yeah, you. he did. Yes, this I was did. on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, I saw that. And you said, Susanna, I got this and I will let you get this. Okay. I mean, I have some creative minorities ideas, but.
1: So creative minorities. I mean, the best answer to wh- how creative minorities work, I think, is to look at Judaism, right? Uh, My people. The Jewish people over the last, you know, millennia since God called Abraham. And uh, actually, uh, Lord Rabbi Sachs gave an address at the Erasmus Lecture, that First Things Magazine puts on every year, a number of years ago, I think entitled creative minorities, we'll drop a link uh, into the notes on this, um, to that, where he goes into this with great eloquence. What is the role of creative minority? uh, And what do they contribute to the wider society? And why is it important that there are creative minorities? Why is it important that we not sort of Universalize everything, but that it's okay for there to be a called people called to do certain things. I think that actually applies to the question of violence and nonviolence. I think it's okay for there to be a called group of Christians who do not assume responsibility for the Commonwealth, who contribute to its good by praying for the empire, by reminding the state of its duties and obligations, and its limits, but don't actually feel like they need to keep the barbarians from the gates. So how does it work? I mean, again, right? I mean, isn't the the, the key example um, the, the Jewish people over the, the years? How does it work that that gets passed on from generation to generation in a way that, for instance, American Christianity isn't doing very good at just now?
0: um yeah that makes a lot of sense and now i see the connection and the way that i would think of it is the other sort of key example is so there's man there's two kind of things here one is that we have this like there is such a thing as a universal ethic like and you know jesus does call us to a universal ethic and there is also a kind of universal natural law um at the same time different people have different roles and even within the sort of councils of perfection you know at various points, St. Paul seems to be saying... Blatt. Councils
1: counsels of oh, perfection see, okay, is not a biblical term.
0: Sorry. <laughs> I'm getting into so much trouble with the Anabaptists right now. Um, which, I don't know what happens when you get into trouble with Anabaptists. They just, I, they make... They non they shake their finger at they you, just, you, I guess. Yeah, I guess. Like I mean, you guys aren't even that into shunning, so I don't know. Mm. Um, plus, you I owe you too that. many edits on things. Don't shun me. I, I, I'm... I, I like your wife's cookies too much. Um, anyway, so like one version of creative minorities within Christianity, other than Anabaptists, are things like, are, are things, are people like um, monks and nuns. So people who are called to um, embody the life of the kingdom to a greater degree. And I know that this is like two-tier Christianity, and this is also getting me in trouble with Anabaptists. Um, But, you know, in for a penny, in for a pound. So I'm fine with that. Um, But it's also just a kind of interesting question because there is this looking at the the history of the Jews and looking at the way that God works in cultures, in world culture, um, large scale. There's that wonderful C.S. Lewis quote that I was just rereading. I reread it on the Annunciation, actually, because he talks about how we have this Desire and instinct for a kind of democratic and flat, uh, this is how we ought to, vision of how we ought to live. And so the idea of a chosen people is deeply offensive to us. But that is not how God seems to work. God actually does seem to ha- call specific people for specific purposes, call specific groups for specific purposes. And you could kind of make the argument that the ultimate creative minority is Mary in the sense that she's the one who finally um, gets picked, gets tagged to carry this act of co-creation of of the second person of the Trinity into existence, which is like super probably heretical or a semi-heretical way to put it. And you know what I mean, I'm not being heretical. Um, but yeah, that is a really interesting kind of connection to nonviolence. And I definitely think, you know, I I regard the Bruderhof as kind of called in this in the way that, you know, various orders, religious orders are called, to live the life of the kingdom to a greater degree and kind of be gadflies in our heads to make us all think that maybe we should be doing this too.
1: Okay. So this (laughs) yeah yeah, so I, I I accept that halfway, and I'm not happy with it either, but uh, Niaz Kadem's question is wonderful, and I do recommend Rabbi Sachs's piece, and this would be a great thing to talk about more uh, deeply, uh, maybe in its own episode once. We do have one more question about punishment and retribution, but... I don't think we can get to it right now, and uh, we need to get to our intermezzo, Susanna. That's true.
0: Man, there are some really other good questions here, though. (laughs) There's the punishment one. There's the kingdom-building one. Okay.
1: So thanks to everyone for your questions, and we will uh, maybe turn them into their own podcast episode some other time. So as usual, in the middle of our podcast, before we get to our second topic— which is going to be our takeaways and what we learned and what we didn't learn over the last six episodes, we talk about what's going on in our communities. Uh, sort of, I talk about the Bruderhof community where I live and then Susanna, uh, will talk about the wider plow community. Right now it's a really exciting time, uh, in the Bruderhof because we're in the middle of, uh, a, a special sort of moment with our beer brewing. Um, uh, where we moved from winter beers to summer beers. And uh, my friend, Daryl Arnold, in the Woodcrest community, who is one of our chief beer brewers, uh, kind of does a specialty beer to go with different seasons of the year. So we had, for the maple sapping season, we had a Rauchbier, a smoked beer that uh, was kind of based on uh, the smoked beers, where you actually smoke the malt before you make the beer. Uh, from the sort of Franconian area around Nuremberg in Germany. They make some really good ones. Um, and so we had that for maple sapping season, which is just wonderful um, and has a tang to it. So that's a, a sort of recommendation. I think you can get some in stores around here. There's, they're kind of hard to find. Um, but then we went to a bourbon porter where you actually dump wild turkey into the beer um, just as we're closing out the cold season. And uh, that was to celebrate, actually, that we have a new community in Tennessee. Uh, We just bought a big uh, college campus called Hawassi. It used to be a Methodist college, and we're starting a new community there. And so we had to make a bourbon-based porter. And we're finally moving now into striped bass season here in New York. Uh, The striped bass are coming up the Hudson following the Herring. Uh, We do a lot of that in the next couple of months and so there's a, a striper beer, striper smash. Um, stripe bass fishing involves a lot of sitting by your fishing rod watching the herring swimming around and waiting to be eaten by a striped bass. And so there's time for beer, and there's a really great, powerful IPA to kind of help you while away the hours. So that's you know kind of what we're doing now.
0: Um, all right. So my uh sort of catch-up from the social world of plow in new york is well a i went to an easter like a physical easter service and <clears throat> i i cannot tell you <laughs> how this is like the second time i've taken communion um since like in 15 months basically and that was just incredible and then like seeing all my, I, I go to a church called emmanuel anglican which normally meets on west 11th street that we sort of haven't been able to so this was in were meeting on East 34th Street in this um, Armenian evangelical church which had an organ and the music director was playing the organ and like you could feel the air vibrating around you and like I kept like touching the wood of the pews like it's real physical wood and then like we were like we kind of went into... Um, we don't really care and we were like hugging each other and it's just I I highly recommend the physical world and like interacting with your friends in the physical world and singing in the physical world Um, it's a lot better than Zoom Um, so then after that we actually um, that was Easter Vigil so then Easter Sunday I met up with um, a, a group of friends on the terrace of the Lambs Club which is this theatrical club that kind of a lot of us belong to Um, and the terrace is this wonderful kind of like, it's right across from, um, St. Patrick's Cathedral, and you can just like look at the cathedral and like drink Prosecco, and that was wonderful. And we actually were discussing, um, Bruderhof, we kind of developed this, I think Don and Jay suggested that there be such a thing as Bruderhops as a beer name, and I think that that already exists.
1: Yeah, and I I've, I have this lifelong dream. Like when I'm kind of old and and useless, I think it would be really cool to start the Bruder Hop's, you know, pub down somewhere around there in Manhattan.
0: Yeah, this we've discussed this before. Yeah. I am very much in favor of that. And I mean, there's all like there's also like just Bruderhof. Like there's so many like
1: yeah, annoying yeah. wordplay
0: things that you that's, can do here.
1: That's really eye rolling. We're going to talk about our key takeaways and what we're left with, what we learned. Suzanne, I think it's only fair for you to start since I've been affording the Anabaptist thing for so long today.
0: (laughs) You've been ranting. One of the things that this has made me think about is, um, one thing that living with principled nonviolence, like makes you do is it, it makes you consider like what to do with the parts of ourselves <clears throat> that <clears throat> that in a good way like fighting. So essentially what to do with our thematic or spirited natures And that's a question that like every Christian has to ask themselves because um, you know we are going to be living as embodied creatures in the New Jerusalem with fulfilled human natures. And if that kind of combative or spirited part of ourselves is, part of ourselves that God built in which I think it is and is good what's the, like can we picture how that would be fulfilled in a world without war be, which we are eventually going to live in we are going to live in thank God a world without war and we are also going to live in a world where no part of ourselves is is thwarted and I think for men and women maybe especially for men that is part of themselves and I'm not sure I totally have answers, but I actually think that Eberhard Arnold's writing, one of the reasons that I like it so much is that it seems to me to honor and address that part of humans um, while maintaining a pacifist, you know, a nonviolent stance, Um, which is not the case with all pacifism. Like a lot of pacifism strikes me as like, just not liking human nature or not liking it just, it feels wimpy and Arnold does not feel wimpy to me. And so that is one of my takeaways. Um, There are also like lots of, I'd I'd love to hear your takeaways, but I also have like lots of unanswered questions and including questions that have kind of come up for me.
1: Yeah, I guess that was one of my takeaways too is that, all of us, whether we're committed to sort of Anabaptist-style nonviolence or not, don't take seriously enough the Scripture's language of spiritual warfare. You know, and it's interesting to me, even in the peaceable kingdom, it seems to me there'll be fights to fight, right? Uh, we we don't know, Um but, you know, the, the Book of Revolutions certainly indicates Book
0: of Revolutions?
1: the kind of thing <laughs> that we're signed up for. And so I don't think all adventure comes to an end. Um, yes, we get to be under our own vine and fig tree, but probably that'll still involve getting up and going off to join the Battle of the Kingdom somehow. Uh, so I think I think – Embracing and re-understanding and becoming excited again about the fact that we actually are in a war, um, but our fight is against powers and principalities, not against human beings, um, is one thing I take out of this. Uh, Christian nonviolence isn't just about having peaceful feelings. And actually, of course, you look at Jesus, and he was not like that at all. Uh, he was pretty harsh. He got mad. Um, He was tough on people. Uh, Reading the Easter story, his confrontations with first Caiaphas and then Pilate, he's hard. Yeah, so takeaways, unanswered questions. I mean, I, I, I haven't obviously changed my sort of Anabaptist convictions, but I do... I think over the last uh, six episodes, I definitely have a greater appreciation for the just war tradition in Christianity. And, uh, I'm kind of left with a bunch of stuff I'd like to chew over with people, um, from there. And I think we've touched on some of those unanswered questions in our discussion today. Um, But Jesus, speaking of Jesus' example and the way he was very tough and is tough with people, um, does bring me to the question of speech and violence, right? Uh, And that's one thing we actually never talked about really in our podcast. So, can speech be violence? Um, And it's kind of hilarious because I just a friend of mine was just having a go round about Christian nonviolence with. Uh, Lutheran, uh, and this was in a German sort of Anabaptist magazine, and the Lutheran turned around and accused him of being verbally violent for pushing him <laughs> so hard on nonviolence.
0: <coughs> oh boy!
1: And and said it was a, a form of violence to question the commitment to violence by other Christians by making them feel uncomfortable that they. We're okay with certain kinds of violence.
0: I'm not sure that guy could have really thrived in the 16th century.
1: No. <laughs> not well.
0: Yeah. So one of the ways that I, I, I have two opposite feelings about this. One is that we really need to be less thin skinned and we really need to be find ways to be okay with verbal combat. Um, but also, that means that there need to be, like, not every place is a place for verbal combat. Like, not every social, social situation is equally appropriate for verbal combat. There needs combat.
1: to be a just war theory for verbal combat.
0: There needs to be a just war theory for verbal combat. And one of the principles needs to be, like, we shouldn't regard the whole world as one flat place where we get to go through the whole world and never be challenged. Um there are there are differences in temperament and I would I am like I, from from what I have seen, guys tend to like to um, duke it out verbally as well as physically sometimes in ways that I'm not always comfortable with. I also kind of sometimes like to duke it out verbally and get irritated with um, a more accommodating or verbally nice maybe we're all right in different ways approach um but that depends on like mood so i don't like i think that like the idea of language as violence we do need to kind of have a basic sticks and stones can break my bones but words can never hurt me stance um at the same time we need to recognize that like again thinking about say seventh grade boys and seventh grade girls seventh grade grade boys tend to kick each other. Seventh grade girls tend to be catty and obnoxious and talk behind each other's backs and say things that like rankle in the mind for the next 20 years. And that's not cool. Like there is such a thing as verbal violence. We might call it something different. Um but don't don't take speech is not violence to mean you can say whatever you want and that's cool. But at the same time, speech is not violence.
1: Yeah. I mean, I thought about this, you know, in in the context of, of course, this whole discussion about, you know, wokeness and cancellation culture and can speech be violence. And, And if you go back to the gospels, you kind of see two apparently contradictory things. On the one hand, you know, Jesus warns very strongly, he says, if you call your brother a fool, you're liable to judgment. Um, Turn the page, and he's calling the Pharisees a brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, right? Um, so much depends on intention. Also, I think on the power dynamics involved in a conversation. Um, if you If you call somebody who's struggling an idiot, and really mean to harm and, and put them down, um, that is a form, okay, I, I, violence, I, you know, this is a word game, right? Is that bad? Yes, it's bad. Um, but that doesn't mean that you can't really get into it with somebody and, you know, speak the truth harshly sometimes. And I, I wonder, are there lessons from that, that we could apply to this uh speeches violence debate today, which often seems to get just silly on both sides.
0: I mean in general I think that one should seek to be courteous as much as possible. Like it's it is good to have good manners and good manners, the purpose of good manners is to make other people other people feel comfortable Um, which is why it's never good manners to point out someone else's bad manners. Um, which is like the second thing I ever learned about manners. And so that's good. Like, it's good to, you know, not to be a civility person. Um, but civility is good and courtesy is good. And a gentle answer turns away wrath. And in general, that is the way that we should approach things. We should not seek to be abrasive or combative verbally or to make other people feel like crap. Um, But contending for the truth verbally is important. um, And sort of candid speech in the Oliver O'Donovan sense is a duty um, that we have to each other in public. And, And in private. And in private. And what Jesus did, you know, Jesus did not sin. He was, you know, he never sinned. And therefore his modes of speech, as really brutal as they frequently were, were not sins. Um, On the other hand, we're not Jesus. (laughs) And and we kind of like, I think in various (laughs) moods tend to like to have an excuse to be polemical and to you know, essentially pull in a, a, you, you brood of vipers or you whited sepulchers on people. Um, so I don't know. I think this is a matter of wisdom and there's not like a single answer. This is one of these things where sometimes acting one way is right and sometimes acting that way is wrong and you need to have uh, wisdom to figure out how to act and what to say.
1: So in our, our communities, there's a saying, uh, I'm not sure exactly where it's from, that uh, love without truth lies and truth without love kills. And I've, that's certainly true in interpersonal relationships in the community where truth is needed, but truth can be deadly uh, if it's spoken without love. And that's, that's uh, perhaps the solution to, I think we just solved the speech violence problem.
0: Yeah, we fixed it.
1: Well, that concludes our six episodes on violence and nonviolence. And at the end, of course, we always give some recommendations. And we wouldn't want to skip that this time. Susanna, do you have a recommendation?
0: I do have recommendations. So um, I actually have two. One is a new podcast called uh, Stet by Barbara McClay and Claire Coffey.
1: Oh, that sounds Um, good.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. they are two of my favorite people, and they are doing a podcast together. They've been friends for years, and they're. this is going to be extremely entertaining. So just look at You can find it on, um, you know, you can find it wherever you find podcasts. I think they're pretty much everywhere. It's called S-T-E-T, um, which is an editorial term meaning let's stand as is. Um, and then also I want to recommend um, – Dorothy Dunnett's House of Niccolo series. So I'm on the second book right now. It's called The Spring of the Ram. The first one was called, man, I forget what the first one was called. But they're this, it's this wonderful kind of incredibly well-researched series about essentially a Renaissance business family and a Renaissance, like a a Medici-type figure. um, A... and the, the Renaissance world that it describes in this kind of incredibly interconnected, um, strangely modern-seeming world is just delicious. So Dorothy Dunnett, D-U-N-N-E-T, um, and the House of Niccolo series. So we will drop links to both of those things in the show notes. Pete, what are your recommendations?
1: Well, I have one, and it's uh, kind of related to the season. So it's wild swimming. It's a tradition in our family, going back to when I was a kid, uh, go out into the woods somewhere, find a wild body of water, and go swimming while it's really cold. Uh, we used to always do it around the Easter weekend, and our family still did it over the we- Easter weekend, um, and it was really, really cold. But talk about uh, ways to kind of get in touch with people uh, nature and just powers of self mastery. It's really wonderful. Um, creates great memories. And it's just a great way to, you know, just walk through the woods and look at the birds and realize that you're going to feel a lot better after you jumped into the water uh, <laughs> than you did before. Well, with that, we'll conclude. Um, perhaps that falls under the category of self-inflicted violence. But um,
0: <laughs> You said it, not me.
1: Do stay subscribed to our podcast. There will be Plow Reads coming every week uh, from now until when we launch our next issue on nature. Creatures, the nature issue. And we'll be doing another round of six podcasts then. So talk to you then. Goodbye. Goodbye.